the overflow hotels closer. <laughs> Um, good morning. Um, welcome to the first real session of, of ASLH 2018. My name is Melissa Pricer, and I am the president and executive director of Dallas Heritage Village, located, of course, in Dallas, Texas. Um, and this is, of course, whiskey for my staff, beer for my llamas. And then since we did program committee, um, we added Dr. Pepper for my visitors because we don't want visitors to be drinking alcohol, right? Um, let's go to the next. I want to talk real quick before I introduce my lovely cohorts about what we are actually going to be talking about and what we're not going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking about contract negotiations because that's kind of important with the things that we are um, talking about. Right-sizing the partnership. Most likely your organization is going to be smaller than these corporations and so making sure that things are an appropriate size for your organization when you are dealing with the, the giant corporate, corporate entities. Boundaries. It's really important to set some boundaries when you're doing this because otherwise you could get swept up into things that aren't going to work for your institution um, or, or the corporation for that matter. Money. Um, we're not always great as a field about talking about money and what things might actually cost to do them appropriately. And so that's another thing that, um, you know, we, sometimes we get blinded by the idea of, of cross-marketing and all this additional exposure by working with this corporate entity and forget that that partnership is costing the organization money. So sometimes you've got to make sure that's up front. And also when to walk away. Sometimes no is the right answer. So we're not going to talk about, though, whether or not to enter into that corporate partnership. That's an entirely different session. This is about when you've decided to start negotiating and figuring out how this is going to work. We're also not going to be talking about traditional sponsorships. So these are relationships that are not just financial. So it's not like a corporation giving you a check for sponsorship for your gala. It's much deeper than that that may have some interpretive impact on your institution. We're also not going to talk about how to find a corporate sponsorship because partially in each of our cases the situation was so unique that I don't know that, that you're going to have a situation like any of us had and so we don't want to spend a lot of time talking about has because in my case at least it it just dropped into our lap so i can't give you any advice on that um so to introduce ourselves i of course am melissa and we'll be talking about llamas and beer um, at dallas heritage village this is jessica katie barkley she is at west overton village which is in scottdale pennsylvania which is about 45 minutes south ish ish of pittsburgh um, and then Joy Summer-Smith on the end, who is from Waco, Texas, and she'll be talking about Dr. Pepper. So I will now turn things over to Jessica to kind of give, give the story on West Overton. I sort of thought I was going second. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Hello. Thanks for being here. Can, is this working? Can you hear me? Okay. Okay. Great. So... I'm Jessica Katie Barkley, CEO and Executive Director of West Overton Village and Museums in Scottsdale, Pennsylvania. Um, we are a small village that grew up around whiskey distillation. 
We consist now of 19 historic structures, about 1803 to about 1910, 19, yeah, about 1910, spread over at least 12 acres. It's a lot. We have a very small staff. Um, what's interesting for us, though, is our, our main character that we, we talk about is Abraham Overholt. And this is our Mennonite farmer and weaver at turned master distiller, and he is the face of old Overholt rye whiskey, which is still being made today. Um, and if anybody, anybody here a rye whiskey, hey, thank you, <laughs> thank you, great, all right. <laughs> no. They don't let me travel with it, you know. Um, so this is, this is our guy. Um, let's see. So, I told you we have all these buildings. These are our two primary interpretive spaces. We've got Abraham's house that he built for his wife in 1838, which sits right across the street from the 1859 distillery that operated first as a grist mill, then as a distillery. So we use those as our primary spaces. Um, we've got the old bottles, whiskey has been made at West Overton or through our family since before 1910 or 1810, which is on the label of the old overhaul, but Abraham's been, was making whiskey way before that. And you can see the different labels. And then now we've got the old Overholt regular rye. And then um, after a visit that beam corporate had put out early this year they said you know we can do better this is a really a really great site and this brand deserves better and they came out with the bonded and i have to say it's i like it it's a it's a, <laughs> it's a nice product and so since 1810 we've been making these uh different labels over on the old farm you'll see there's a house picture that's actually the house our 1838 house that abraham built and um, prior to probably 2011, we've been a museum since 1928 and really in a strong Mennonite community. And they really pushed away from embracing this whiskey history. Um, they focused on being the birthplace of Henry Clay Frick. Um, you all are familiar with him, most hated man in America at one point in time, right? <laughs> so um, we didn't get a lot of traction on that. Um, they, they shied away from the whiskey, thinking it wasn't family, it wasn't a museum, this is one, isn't what we're about. But, you know, our, I have you to thank on this one. <laughs> uh, our story is one of entrepreneurialism. We've got farming and weaving and the grist mill and coopering, all these other things. But whiskey is what grew up this village around us. So we decided to embrace it. And the community has hopped on. And you'll see old uh, Francis Fry down there on the bottom. Our, our community members are showing up with bottles that they found that have been in their family for a really long time. The community's been really supportive about this. And we're building some really neat programming around it. Uh, we collect old Overholt merchandise. And it's actually really cool. We love these retro images. and we're using them for some uh, merchandise in the gift shop. It's been fun. Um, we collect that old Overholt, old farm, early whiskey memorabilia labels, but we're also collecting the other pre-prohibition era labels. One of the things that a lot of people aren't that familiar with is just how prevalent or how important of an industry whiskey was in, 
in Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania, pre-prohibition. So we, these are distilleries that are a stone's throw away from ours. So we've started collecting these things. And um, this is us now. So we are moving forward. We are opening up an educational distillery in one of our outbuildings, the Overton Stock Farm. So we will now have the homestead, the distillery museum, and the distillery, which kind of, we gotta rename the museum and call it something else. But um, we have a modern distillery, uh, modern still, and we'll be growing our, our rye on original overholt ground that it's adjacent to the museum, working with farmers within a 15 mile radius. And one of the exciting things we're working on right now is helping to bring back heirloom varieties of rye. Um, yeah, so, so we're super excited about it. Um, the big thing for us has been ensuring that the distilling, because it's so exciting, it's a sexy thing, it, it has to have the right place in, in the scope of the museum. And so by focusing on the educational aspects of it, I think we've, we've done that um, hopefully well. Hopefully. Um, and of course, conversations are also continuing with Jim Beam, who is now the ones that are producing Old Overholt. Old Overholt. So that's a part of what we will get into more deeply later. Right, right. But I didn't want to jump into right, that beforehand. Right, right, right. So. so we're giving you background, but not background. So yeah, we're, we're going to have a broader conversation later. So, all right. Thank you, Jessica. So okay. now, now. So. The Statler Hotel was a really, really big deal when it opened in downtown Dallas in 1956. It was the largest hotel in the Southwest with 1,001 rooms and a very modern mid-century design. And a fun piece of trivia for you today, um, Tina Turner left Ike at the Statler. Nice, nice. I know. Um, but it fell out of... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It fell out of fashion and in disrepair and closed in 2001. It landed on three endangered lists due to the city calling for its demolition, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation. In 2014, it was purchased by the Centurion Group. Renovation began in order to turn it into a combination of apartments, hotel, and restaurant space. At $238 million, it is the largest historic tax credit project in, in Texas. So, when their director of marketing called me in April 2017 and said, I want to talk to you about a marketing opportunity, I said, yes, I figured they were going to ask me for money, and I would say no, but at least I would get a hard hat tour, because I wanted to see. So, as you can see, um, Dallas Heritage Village is not that far from the Statler, so we are that large green space just south of the freeway, and then the other blue star is where the Statler is, so it's seven or eight blocks um, and so we're standing on the rooftop and that may be no that's not in that okay I have different <laughs> versions of this going on um, Rachel the director of marketing said to me we're going to be putting a llama statue here put a pin in that and we'll get back to it so over lunch Rachel shared with me the story of Linda Lee the llama in 1959, as part of a Neiman Marcus fortnight, I'm assuming most of you have heard of Neiman Marcus, which is a luxury department store. They had fortnight, was like this giant fashion and art show that was two weeks long. It was a really big deal. Um, the theme was South America, and they brought the most famous llama in the world, 
Linda Lee to stay at the Statler for two weeks. And so obviously there were some fabulous photos and go to the next, yeah, she's even a meme. Um, and so with this story and the uniting of two historic Dallas icons, the Statler had decided to adopt llamas as their, as their mascot. So, as part of their branding plan, they wanted to have llamas make daily appearances <laughs> at the Statler, kind of like the ducks at the Peabody Hotel. But unlike the Peabody, where the ducks can live at the hotel, the llamas can't live at the Statler. So where's the closest place for llamas to live to downtown Dallas, but Dallas Heritage Village, where we already have an animal program, including these fine donkeys. So after I got over my absolute shock at the turn this meeting had taken, this was not what I thought we were going to be talking about, I told Rachel that step one was going to be talking to our animal care manager, Bonnie, and then step two would be board approval, obviously, and then we could start figuring out how this was actually going to work. And those first two steps, of course, turned out to be the easiest. Everyone was really excited about llamas. So... So we very quickly realized that there are no models for this kind of partnership. Um, we used a boarding agreement from a stable for horses as our basis for the contract, but knew that there were other things we needed to include. So during conversations with Rachel, we also discussed additional philanthropic support, cross-marketing, and how to handle staffing. The idea was they were going to pay for all of the costs associated with the llamas, including additional staff to care for the llamas and then of course transport and be with them at the hotel and of course all of those were things that were not exactly in our uh, template contract um, we also determined that the statler would have to build a barn and fence in a section of our grounds we're on the museum itself is on about 13 acres so we had plenty of space to do this um, for grazing purposes because llamas really like to eat fresh grass the barn added a really big layer to the approval process because we are located on city park land. So anything that we build on this park land has to be approved by the city parks board. So this is one of the key lessons, set those boundaries firmly. And that contract is absolutely critical. So, so by December, so this started in April, they were supposed to have their grand opening sometime first quarter of 2018. So by December, we still didn't have a contract. Um, ready for board approval. They kept sending me stuff and I'm like, this is not work, go back. Like my lawyers are not gonna let you do this and I'm not a lawyer, but I knew that much. Um, there are just things missing, like there was no language about what would happen if this partnership fell apart, which let's be honest, this is a little bit of a crazy idea. It's not going to last forever and what's gonna happen to the barn, what's gonna happen to the animals. Um, all of that good stuff. And so they're really slow in responding to anything. And I began to wonder if this was actually going to happen, because this was a big investment on the part of the Statler also. But then we got an invite to the unveiling of that llama statue and um, on the rooftop. And we're like, okay, so this llama thing is definitely happening. They've managed to get this giant statue that looks out over downtown erected. So maybe, maybe we're in good shape. So in early January, we learned that our primary contact, Rachel, had left the Statler, and they were not planning to replace her position. 
My primary contact began, became the staff lawyer that was working on the contract, but of course he was probably working on a lot of other things too. And we didn't really hear much of anything. And I did the whole thing like, is this still on? He's like, yes, it's still on. I'm like, okay, I need a contract. Um, and then suddenly they called us. Their grand opening was going to be in two weeks. Could the llamas that they were purchasing come to DHV for the grand opening week? So they did. Um, we had to absolutely scramble, and there were plenty of signals during that entire week that things were not going well at the Statler. Um, there was a lot of disorganization and last-minute changes the entire week of the opening. But you are all planners of things as well. How can throwing together a week of activities together in less than two weeks go well? Like, there's just the odds are against you. But we got some great photos. So, and as difficult as that week was, especially for Bonnie, who is our llama handler, was the llama handler and our animal care manager, we did learn some really important things during that week. First, people really like llamas, like a lot. Um, second, cross-marketing had to be very clearly stated in the contract because they had promised that our name would be all over all of this, and it was not. Um, third, we really needed a clear line of command at the Statler. We were getting instructions from a lot of different people. So right after that grand opening week, I left town for a conference, but I knew that we were going to be having a serious conversation when I got back. And I mean, to be honest, and I think you guys, I see based on your facial expressions, I was having second thoughts about the whole thing, as I'm sure you guys would too, mainly because I didn't want to subject my staff to what was looking to be a really toxic environment at the Statler. Um, we do not work the way the Statler works. And so that, I think, is something to think about as well when you're looking at these deeper corporate relationships. So while on that trip, I got a call from the Statler, could we start the llama program before the barn was built? Guess what I said? I said we needed to talk in person. Of course, they wanted me to handle this while I was in Philadelphia um, because there were bigger issues that had to be addressed first. So we actually met the, the day I returned because they were so eager to get going. And during that meeting, I laid out a few things for them, all of which are really key to remember if you're working on a big partnership like this. First, I reminded them that everything we do has to either support our mission or advance our mission. And llamas are not part of our mission. So therefore, they had to some way advance our mission, which meant we needed that cross-marketing with our name all over everything, and we needed the additional philanthropic support that had been discussed. They needed to do more than just cover the costs of the llama program. Um, secondly, we would not begin to discuss the llamas coming back until the following things had occurred a signed contract, mm -hmm. approval from the park board regarding the barn, and I wanted construction to be underway because I had seen how delayed their construction had been, and I didn't want the llamas hanging out with our sheep for longer than was healthy for either the llamas or the sheep. So they recommitted to the project and thus began this real big flurry of getting drawings together, meeting with representatives from the park board and getting closer on the contract. And then it all fell apart. 
We were set to be on the agenda for the next park board meeting, but I wasn't hearing back from the Statler or getting the final drawings that we needed to submit. So two days before the park board meeting, I sent one of those emails that said, I need this ASAP and I expect a response by the end of the business day and you haven't responded to anything I've sent for the last two weeks. This is ridiculous. So they replied that they needed to put the project on indefinite hold. And the official reason was that the cost of constructing the barn had risen to over $100,000. Now, I don't know a lot about construction, and I do know that prices are rising rapidly, but I don't think that it costs $100,000 to build a barn. But the real reason is probably what's going on in this photo. There was a headline that appeared two weeks after that conversation with the Statler that said, Dallas's Statler Hotel is on round-the-clock fire watch. Why aren't guests being warned? The entire sprinkler system in this $250 million development was faulty, leaking, as in the adhesive or whatever connecting joint, again, not a construction person, they had done to put the pipes together, was eating through those pipes like gasoline through styrofoam was the quote used in the paper. Um, so I'm pretty sure, this has not been confirmed, that they were using that thrown together grand opening party and the llamas as a PR deflection because they knew this was going to come out. There are now many lawsuits related to this issue because obviously there's been leases, um, things are, you know, have to be replaced, they have to redo all of the ceilings, um, and I haven't heard a word from them since, and I think that's okay. Um, it could have been a transformative partnership, absolutely, because it is becoming the place to see and be seen for those that don't know all of this backstory about how this company is being run. Um, it also could have been an absolute and total disaster. And the more I've learned about the company and their relationships with some other community partners, the more I feel like we definitely dodged a bullet. So on a brighter note, the brewery partnership is working out great. <laughs> Um, about three years ago, we learned that Four Corners Brewing, which is one of Dallas's older craft breweries, was moving and would be located across the street from the museum. So this is the before. These are the buildings before they took them over. And I reached out to them shortly after the news broke to introduce myself. I, to be perfectly honest, really enjoy craft beer. And I had a few ideas about how museums and breweries could work together. And so at that very first meeting, I learned that Greg, one of the owners, had actually volunteered at Dallas Heritage Village back in the 80s with his mom, and that he had also already been thinking about ways for us to work together. He also mentioned his idea about a history of beer, history of barbecue event at Dallas Heritage Village. Next slide. So there's what it looks like now. Um, in October 2017, renovations were complete and they opened, and it was the first major opening on that particular street in decades. We're in the middle of a rapidly redeveloping neighborhood in Dallas, and it's just now starting to creep on over to our side of things. And it was really, I will admit, a very big thrill to walk into that space for the first time and see it renovated. Um, their tap room is in a historic stables building, so they're doing adaptive reuse, which always makes us historians happy. Um, it has already become a go-to spot for meetings. They're bringing all sorts of people to the neighborhood and sending them to DHV, and I've never had to pay full price for a beer. Um, so that's Greg, uh, the man up in the corner, and he's actually talking to one of our founders who came to our membership happy hour to see the brewery, which I thought that was pretty neat that Ruthann, she refused to have a beer, but she did come. <laughs> so 
We also began to work on the barbecue event. So Greg is good friends with a man named Daniel Vaughn, who has the enviable job title of barbecue editor for Texas Monthly. Like he gets paid to eat. So the plan was to bring together some of the top pit masters in Texas. And of course, Daniel has a really good relationship with all of those, those guys um, and have them cook at DHV using historic methods. It would be a fundraiser and we would split the proceeds with our partners. We named it Birthright Barbecue and decided to have it on Father's Day, which going into it's like, this is either going to really work well or yikes. So a week out, we had sold out 700 tickets. We have never sold out an event before, and apparently neither had Four Corners, which was kind of cool too. Um, we built a giant pit using cinder blocks, um, used our reproduction smokehouse to actually smoke things. It had never smoked anything before, and got to hang out with some of the top foodies in Texas, including Aaron Franklin. If you know anything about barbecue, he is considered the current god of Texas barbecue, he's also a really nice guy. Um, part of what made this event so special for the pitmasters was the opportunity to hang out and cook together. Um, they gathered the night before to build the pit and start smoking the meat and cooked all night. And apparently, usually at festivals, they don't get to talk to each other mu much. They come with the food already prepared and they're just slinging it out and then they go home. So they all fell in love with DHV and are really eager to come back next year. And so the actual event was also a really huge success. Um, probably 75% of the attendees were brand new to Dallas Heritage Village, and they fell in love with us too. And it was one of those moments where, you know how sometimes you have an event and you just know there's going to be ripple effects, but you're not going to be able to figure out those ripple effects for a while. Um, we knew that was going to happen just with the, the excitement that was there in the air. And one of those ripple effects actually just happened a couple of weeks ago. We are the new location for an event called Chefs for Farmers, um, which is probably the premier food and wine event for North Texas. And it's happening on November 4th. So this is a last minute change for them. And we're expecting about 2000 people there. And all we have to do is be the venue and, and collect some nice. money. So why is this working so well that's the pit masters and the volunteers and and our dhv team that worked on this obviously this is a much closer mission fit than llamas um, but we also have partners that understand who we are and what we do in a way that the statler never did and i'm not entirely entirely sure the statler ever could fully understand that um, team effort but we're also size-wise a little bit more evenly matched. Um, Four Corners is bigger, but the team that worked on the event was not that much bigger, so that I think helped a lot too. Um, another key thing is that the Statler was certainly geographically close. They didn't really care about the neighborhood itself, but Four Corners, of course, is as interested in the success of the Cedars neighborhood as we are, and I think those common goals are really key. Um, they're also a lot more honest and communicative, and they had plenty of experience with events because they do events all the time at their brewery. So plans are underway for next year, and we're planning to increase the number of tickets available as well as the price. I have to say, in all of my years as a museum professional, I've never been part of an event that has gone so well the first time around. It was an absolute delight. The only thing that could have been better was the humidity, and that was not pleasant, but it's Texas. So now it is Joy's turn, and we have a fabulous transition photo <laughs> of llamas drinking Dr. Pepper at the Statler. 
in we, this case, I know. This we we do what we can do. Um, it, it turns out this uh, spring, our collections manager was doing a little bit of research for a presentation she was doing on Dr. Pepper, the state fair, and uh, the circus. And it turns out that the Dr. Pepper company in the 1950s had a bottler meeting uh, at the Statler in Dallas, uh, Dallas being where company headquarters is now. So of course, uh, Linda Lee had to try some Dr. Pepper while they were there. Um, so, <laughs> it's Baylor in the Bears too, but the Bears don't drink Dr. Pepper at Baylor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's a no-no. Um, so, anyways, uh, just to clear the air um, and get a little base ground understanding about what the Dr. Pepper Museum and Free Enterprise Institute is, we are a private nonprofit institution. We are not owned or operated by Keurig Dr. Pepper. Um, we have been open since uh, 1991, and we are located in a historic company headquarters building slash bottling plant. Uh, the building itself was opened in 1906, um, and bottling occurred there until the 1960s, and that's when cans became a pretty popular way in which to get your Dr. Pepper. Um, and the building was too small for bottling and canning, and so they relocated to a different area. The building at that point in time was closed. Uh, Dr. Pepper used it as a warehouse and later sold it to Baylor University, and they used it as a warehouse then. In the 1980s, a group of citizens around the 100th anniversary of Dr. Pepper in 1985 um, began refocusing on the downtown Waco area and worked with Dr. Pepper Company, Baylor University, and acquired the building and a founding collection that was purchased by the Dr. Pepper Company and given to the 501c3 as the founding collection. Um, so our mission statement devotes us to the entire soft drink industry, not just Dr. Pepper. There are a lot of bottlers around the United States that might bottle a couple of products that shouldn't be named Coke and Pepsi, um, but can get the franchise rights to bottle Dr. Pepper as well. So um, opening uh, the mission statement for the entire soft drink industry allowed our original founding board to uh, branch out and fundraise uh, with uh, the entire soft drink industry. So you'll find a lot of other brands talked about in the museum when you come. Um, we are also devoted uh, to the entire, uh, to uh, free enterprise education, um, looking at the soft drink industry as the model. So hence our name, Dr. Pepper Museum and Free Enterprise Institute. At this point in time, we are a two-building campus. Let's see if this is going to work. There we go. This is, there we go. <laughs> uh, this is the museum on opening day. Um, this is the original 1906 building. Um, we have grown to encompass two buildings, as I was saying, um, and then in 2015, Chip and Joanna Gaines located uh, their site, Magnolia, at the silos, um, and you can see the silos in the background. We are located two blocks from them. Um, it's, that's called hitting the jackpot. <laughs> <laughs> Were we prepared? No, probably not as much as we would have liked to have been. 
Um, that, that was another session that we did last right at, at Tam. At at Texas. Tam. <laughs> <laughs> um, attendance has grown over a hundred thousand people in the past three years. We were at sixty-five. We're at one hundred and sixty-five or plus that by the end of the year this year. So. Um, we've got lots going on and things are growing um, and it's putting us in a very different position um, with Keurig Dr. Pepper too. Let's see what else. Oh, there's our opening day. My pictures got out of order. I apologize. Um, so we've got one, two, three, four people with uh, Dr. Pepper or bottling groups in this picture for opening day. So they have been very instrumental um, in the founding of the museum and participating on multiple levels throughout the years. Um, so our relationship with um, Keurig, Dr. Pepper, um, as I said, it started um, with the founding of the museum. It was known as the Dr. Pepper Company at that point in time. They bought back uh, the building and donated it to us. They bought the original collection. Um, one of the things for us over the years is, while we initially were working with the Dr. Pepper Company, Dr. it was bought by Cadbury Schweppes. It became Cadbury Schweppes America's Beverages. It then became Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. And as of July 9th of this year, it's now Keurig Dr. Pepper. Um, so if you can keep it all straight, it's a, a wonder in my tenure there, and I've been at the museum for 16 years, it's been three of those names. Um, we currently have three contracts uh, with the company. One is a philanthropic agreement. It uh, started with Cadbury Schweppes continued with Cadbury Schweppes America's Beverages, uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple Group, um, and we will see how it continues with Keurig Dr. Pepper. Um, it is a um, matching grant. Um, it started um, and then evolved so that it is a $100,000 matching grant per year, and we renegotiate the contract every three to five years with them on that. Um, in terms of their philanthropic budget as a company, it's small beans. Um, they do a lot of work with uh, their Let's Play initiative, working with uh, Kaboom and Good Sports, and um, pump a lot of money into that program, um, having to do with a calories in, calories out initiative that they have. Um, they also do a lot of philanthropic work with um, water conservation in the state of Texas, too, for water waste. Soft drinks are um, 86 to 93 percent water, so it's a big concern for the soft drink industry. Um, so in terms of relation with the other two, um, we are a very small amount of their philanthropic budget. Um, another. Um, contract that we have with them is a marketing and licensing agreement. Um, over the years, we've had licensing rights uh, to historic Dr. Pepper logos. It was originally viewed by the company as a way for us to generate income uh, for their way of offering continued support uh, for our operating budget. Um, we still have a contract with licensing. It has drastically evolved over the years. Uh, the last uh, contract 
uh, included, we were off, we were providing support for their marketing and licensing teams um, in exchange for the $20,000 that they were giving us annually uh, to pay for that work. So with the marketing licensing contract, it means that if they want to know what an RC can looked like in the 1970s, we pull, photograph, and uh, send the pictures to them. And I found out recently that the work that we did on pulling photographs for the uh, RC um, cans from the 1970s, they've reused that, and there's a new RC can out on the market, and I have yet to go hunt it down and find it and see what it looks like now. But it, it's you can see the work um, coming um, back and being used in the marketplace now. Um, sometimes they do work on a much larger scale that requires significant staff time. In 2007 and 8, um, they redid the Dr. Pepper logo and they came down and spent two days with our staff pulling objects, looking at historic Dr. Pepper logos and using that research that they did to create the current logo for Dr. Pepper. Um, we also do um, product placement for them in movies. We'll pull from their collection that we have on site, and I'll get into that a little bit more in just a bit. Um, and the last thing we did was we sent a Dr. Pepper sign overseas to London for a movie that they were doing product placement with. So um, that's been interesting. Um, and then the latest version of our contract, they finally were listening to us. Um, instead of take, 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 they were finally listening, and uh, our last agreement incorporated um, the idea of doing product sampling, because what do our visitors want th when they come to the Dr. Pepper Museum? What do you get when you go to the world of Coke? <laughs> Free Coke! <laughs> um, and for us, because we are a private nonprofit and we're not associated with the company, we have to purchase our Dr. Pepper just like everybody else. So for us to provide our visitors with a free sample is a terrible business model. Um, for us to buy it and then give it away for free, um, it's not a good opportunity. And so they were finally trying to work with us to get us a better pricing deal, um, but also working with us to create a sampling station, which there's a really big button there. Um, but I'll get to that in a little bit as we talk later. Um, and then our third contract has to do with the collection. In 2007, we acquired on long-term loan their collection that had been acquired by, uh, at the time, Cadbury Schweppes America's Beverages. Um, their portfolio is over 30 national and international soft drink brands, and as they bought the RC company, they acquired all of their stuff that they had collected over the years. As they bought 7-Up, they acquired the 7-Up collection, the Squirt collection, <laughs> and they had been storing it in a warehouse in Dallas. Um, what does Keurig Dr. Pepper do well? They sell soft drinks and coffee very well. What do they not do well? Store, Store their history. <laughs> Um, so we acquired the collection taking on the role of being the people that tell the historic story and preserving it for them. So um, they, we've had a variety of contracts for the objects over the years. 
Currently, we're renegotiating the collection contract um, because they sell Dr. Pepper well. They don't understand what it means to inventory, care, and preserve the long-term history of the company. Their collection is over 200,000 objects at least. It has been on our site since 2007. They worked with us for a while to get it documented and then the money stopped. So we're currently renegotiating because for 11 years it's been on site and we still don't have a good understanding of what their collection is. Uh, they sent it to the museum um, unprepared for us and as my note said, have pretty much walked away. Um, so our immediate future with all of these is a little bit unknown. We have a new president and CEO at the Dr. Pepper Museum who uh, is really interested in renegotiating all of our contracts. And as we've come to do more and more thinking um, as since his arrival, yeah, we've been getting the short end of the stick. Um, and so um, we just need to overall overhaul all of that with the new Keurig people in place um, uh, that don't have a relationship with the museum, we'll see where we land. So let's see, do I have any more pictures? I no, think that's, that's all our end. pictures. So I'm gonna go back to the very first uh, slide real quick. So we have some really big themes and ideas that kind of unite all of our stories, but I think before we get into that, um, just because you know we, we wanna do what people wanna know, are there any burning questions for, for any of us before we get into some of the, these big uniting themes? Yes. So I'm going to repeat that really quick because we are recording the session apparently and we probably should have handed the mic but that's <laughs> a lot of work. Um, so he's wanting to know about ethics of companies because companies do not always have glowing delightful stories and how to negotiate that especially when the ethics are not in direct um, correlation with your institution. Is that a pretty decent paraphrase? So, so do you guys have anything to say on that because I don't know that I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think I've just called them out already. Uh, <laughs> um, because we are a private nonprofit um, and they aren't even in the same town as us so much, we, we can touch on some subjects that um, and, and talk about some things that way. They just physically aren't there. Um, and, and because they are such a large corporation, I think this kind of goes back to one of the things we were talking about. Um, we're, 
we just don't really even rank many times in the grand scheme of uh, what they do. Um, I can go to them as a resource for stuff. They do use us as a resource. Um, we've been talking about the sampling station and they were like, oh, we want to see your designs and drawings. And I'm like, yeah, you, you haven't paid enough for this yet <laughs> to, to, to sign off on this. So um, I have the luxury, I guess, in a way of being able to still continue to do what we need to do and not have to get approval from them. So one of our, our big ideas is contracts are your friend. Um, I know that most of us probably don't have a background in law and legal stuff, but um, one thing that I've learned in my different contract negotiations, and, and we'll let others share too, I mean, obviously you want to get your experts in, but your eyes as museum leadership are the first set of eyes. So look at those contracts and ask yourself some questions like, what if this goes wrong? And I think that's probably the most important question you can ask when you're presented a contract, because when you're you know, entering into those relationships, you're very optimistic. And this is going to be amazing. And occasionally, like, you need that reality check of what if, how do we dissolve this in a way that does not hurt my institution for the long term? And I think if you can figure that out in the contract in the beginning, before you pass it on to your pro bono law lawyer or your board members that are lawyers or whatever, that's going to save the entire organization a lot of time. Part of the reason why we kept not having a contract was because I kept saying things like, you should perhaps change the word stable, because again, we had this template contract, to Dallas Heritage Village. Oh. <laughs> what happens to the llamas when this contract goes away? I would like to have the opportunity to purchase those llamas because the Sattler is going to purchase llamas in case they're such a huge hit and we fall in love with them and would like to keep them. So those were the kinds of things that were stalling the contract. And then by the time my lawyers did finally get a hold of it, they did not like it at all. And anyway, so do you have any other further contract story? Well, I, I mean, you have many contract stories. One is a good one for things like that. Um, and the uh, agreement was written in 2007. Um, we were working with the facilities <laughs> department at, uh, very shortly thereafter, Cad uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple Group, um, and they were the ones that had control of the warehouse where it had been, and they were the ones then moving it to the site, so we were working with facilities and then Dr. Pepper's legal team, which, you know, uh, 10, 12, I don't know how many lawyers mm. they have on staff, but quite a few of them. Um, and the contract wound up being signed, but yeah, we, facilities there for, uh, there shortly after went away. They began to outsource all of their facility needs to an outside contractor, which then put us in the place of, well, we're not working with the outside contractor. Um, who now has responsibility for the collection and fingers went this way. Yeah. Um, it, we became the hot potato um, and the contract didn't designate another group. It, what happens when Dr. Pepper Staple Group didn't fulfill all of their obligations in cataloging the collection before it came on site. Um, and so we have been spending the last 11 years 
in a huge tangled mess. Which leads to another big uniting theme, it's not about you. Um, I think, and this is something that we've all learned, sometimes the easy way, sometimes the hard way. Our, though this was a very big deal to us, it is not a big, very big deal to them. And so sometimes if you don't hear from them, it really has nothing to do with your project or your partnership and what you're talking about. It has to do with everything else that is going on in their world, which you may or may not know about. And I think both Jessica and Joy have some, you know, sometimes it takes a long time to get answers. Yeah. So Jessica, maybe you should jump in a little bit. This, this has been my experience. So we are still working with um, Beam Suntory who is the maker of Old Farm, or Old Overholt Rye. Um, we're in a nice situation, sort of, because we have always functioned this way. The, uh, the story of Old Overholt Rye is ingrained to what we're doing. So regardless of what, what happens, we still move forward. What this, the, we're working on a cross-marketing agreement right now where they would use our logos and we would use theirs. And, um, the contract, it took a while for them to get us the initial contract. We were lucky enough to get very nice pro bono, full service uh, national law firm to review this contract. That was a big sticking point for me. I did not want, you know, Bob the lawyer from down the street to review this contract. Um, and they went through it and redlined it. And the two big, the two big things that we had that were, were given back was, ensure that the language surrounding the use and the process of getting permission to use those logos matched. So I, I think up front, it was a pretty thorough and fair contract, um, but there were some details that needed to match. And then um, the second part that was a, an issue for us prior to getting the, the national law firm was the all the litigation or anything disputes had to take place in a different state. And we are an extremely small museum and that would have broke us and there just would have been no way. So um, <laughs> I returned the, uh, my portion of this marketing agreement back to their legal team on July 10th and I'm still waiting. And every time I speak to their uh, brand people, their ambassadors, the people who are now handling this relationship, um, because we started out with a group of people um, great relationship they're super excited about the prog project yeah let's go let's go and and then they get promoted and move on so then we're we're starting or decide again. to leave because the company is insane just yeah. what happened in my yeah, case yeah. um ours are more positive movements, that's good movements, that's good. good um but but now we have um the person who's handling our relationship since we are sort of the heritage site for one of their smaller brands uh, who's actually never been to our site yet. So, you know, what's her enthusiasm for the project? Is this something that's been dumped in her lap? Or, so we have to re-engage. We're re-wooing each other, I guess. Um, but they say, oh, have you signed that marketing agreement? And I say, the ball's still in your court. You've had it since July. So we're, we're waiting. But to this point of it's not about you, because it's taken so long to see this, my board, what's going on with Beam? You should get them to call them. 
find out what's going on. Call them up. What's going on? And, and you know, I, I keep my finger a little bit on the pulse of what's going on, and, and I know that they're doing a $165 million expansion in their Kentucky sites, right? I know that their, their legal issues um, are, are bigger than just what's going on in Scottsdale, Pennsylvania with West Overton, <laughs> right? So there's some huge things. So thinking about where we fall priority-wise within this corporation, I'm, I keep saying to my board, this is going to happen. It's a natural fit. It's a win. We just need to take our time. Deliberate conversations yes. is, is definitely the key to it. Uh, with Keurig, Dr. Pepper's uh, changeover uh, this summer, our main contact I found out when I began trying to introduce our new president and CEO around um, whispers through the grapevine, I heard that uh, she might not make it through the merger. Oh. So I, you know, she sits on our advisory board too at mm -hmm. the museum. So there were, were lots of things and so we began looking around as our president and CEO began looking at contracts more. Okay, well who's still there that we know that we know is in a secure place. And reading the beverage industry magazines, I found the mm -hmm. person that had made the transition. His name was listed in every single article <laughs> as making the transition. And we had had, we've had, his, we have history with him as an organization. It's like, okay, well, this is the guy that we need to go to now. Um, but he's dealing with all the merger stuff. And so to get an appointment with him, we're working two to three months out. Mm. So it takes time. And I think, so uh, and obviously I'm going to bring this part up. Know when to walk away yeah. also is really important and be willing to do it. And this does take a certain amount of courage um, because these are relationships with much bigger institutions that, of course, could change some things for the better for your institution. Um, we were really intrigued with the possibility of, of more awareness. We are on the edge of downtown Dallas, and yet we are not considered a downtown institution. But if we had that relationship with a new prominent downtown institution, that, that might help with that. Um, and this is also where the boundaries come in and setting those boundaries. And for us, it was kind of easy because we were taking on the care of some lovely llamas. And we already had a long history of caring for animals and we learned a lot about what those llamas needed to be healthy and happy. And so that was a really easy boundary where we were able to say, no, we can't do that. And it wasn't about us, it was about the safety of the llamas. And of course, the Statler wouldn't have wanted any negative press about animal care either. And so that was a, a handy thing. And I think that's one of the keys on these relationships too, is saying you're a small institution or, or you know, oh, woe is me, I can't, that's not gonna get anywhere with some of these folks because they don't care. But if it's something, if it's a boundary you can set that could also impact them if they cross over it, suddenly the dynamic changes a little bit. So I think that's, you know, they made the decision to end this discussion, but I was have been really close for a variety of reasons in the weeks leading up to it and just hadn't had to make the decision quite yet. They made it for me. And part of that also is the patience and, and saying, no, we have to have these other things in place before 
this is official. So I think that's another big thing because sometimes we get dazzled um, and realizing that we've got to do what's best for the institution. And so I know that some of what is happening with, with you guys as well is figuring out how do we make sure the artifacts and the collection are cared for in a way that all of our staff time money isn't being spent mm-hmm. on this collection. So... Uh, for us thanks for us since (laughs) since Abraham's face I mean this this is his site and it's it's such a part of what we do we're going to continue to do our interpretation of this Um, the marketing agreement and our our conversations with beam is going to formalize that and make it uh, hopefully a little easier and hopefully provide some ongoing support that's all still working we're working through that now um, initially, because we weren't getting a clear understanding of, of what Beam envisioned this being, um, there was interest in them coming in and Jim Beamifying our, our museum. <laughs> <laughs> and, and from the get-go, I, I had said, and I prepped my board with this, and I had said, this cannot be the Jim Beam Wonderland, right? So we we are who we are, and we are small, but when you get a small organization that can be dazzled, can be dazzled by this, um, if they were to say, you know, hey, we're gonna throw $100,000, which, you know, small potatoes to them, but huge potatoes to us, um, they could have just said, sure, do whatever you want. We can have sponsored Jim Beam exhibits in our, in our space, but, um, Thankfully, when we, we got the chance to speak with them one-on-one with their um, corporate U.S. level team, that's not what they wanted either. They wanted to ensure the integrity of, of the experience at West Overton. So, so far, it's, it's been a, a nice partnership. <laughs> so for years, we've been the, please, sir, can we oh. have some more? Um, uh, with being a small institution with a very small operating budget, yeah, we were dazzled. That is clearly where we were for lots of years, not willing to um, stand up, ask for more, Mm -hmm. um, weren't willing to do the research on what it was costing us, uh, just whatever they were giving us, we were willing to take it no matter the cost. Um, And then we began to have some turnover in our board a couple of years ago. And they're like, no, really, what are you doing? How much time does it take you? And And I haven't gone to the extent yet where I'm asking all of my staff, okay, I want you to keep track of how many hours you're spending on answering consumer request questions because they get referred to us a lot of times oh. when it's history um, the research <laughs> that we're doing for staff um, because a lot of times staff up at the company would be like okay we need you to send such and such to this movie we're working on well when do you need it there uh, yesterday <laughs> is that possible uh, no um, because first of all, we need to know this, 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 and this, and it's going to cost X, 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 and X. Um, and so we've slowly begun taking a stand for ourselves and what it means for 
the staff time that gets pulled away from actual museum work to do their work. Mm -hmm. um, I think with our new president and CEO, I well, I think I know <laughs> um, he came in, we reviewed those contracts his second week on site and he began asking questions. And I now know that the sampling station that they were willing to give us $30,000, it's gonna take us $120,000 to get it installed and operating for the first year. Nice. We were gonna be $100,000 in the hole on a project that they thought they were helping us with. We'll, answer, we'll solve all your problems because all these people that are complaining about not being able to get a free drink, we'll give you $30,000 and that should do it. No, no. So my no. final thing before opening it up to the, which needs no additional explanation is show me the money. <laughs> this, these partnerships though, yes, they are gonna have interpretive impact. If you are not getting paid to do it, don't, don't start because it, it can be a huge time suck. So show me the money. This all boils down to money and they have a lot more of it than we probably do. So keep that in mind too, that you know you, you need your contract, but you also need to be very open and upfront about what it's gonna cost you for that relationship and make sure that that partner is showing you the money. Don't so, mouth yourself. Don't, yeah. Don't pour mouth yourself. Don't pour mouth yourself. Like you are, we are valuable. Yeah, we are valuable people. Mm -hmm. So we have about 15 minutes for questions before lunch. So does anybody have any? Yes, ma'am. We included staff time in the contract that never got signed. <laughs> so no, we, we got nothing for the year that we spent trying to get this to happen other than the actual costs for um, taking the llamas to the Sattler for their grand opening week. Um, the beer thing is different. So our beer relationship, of course, it is a lower impact partnership to begin with. Um, and because we are a financial beneficiary of that event, and also I don't have to pay for beer or full price for beer. And they're also doing things like our annual meeting was at the brewery a couple of weeks ago. They did not charge for the space. So there's that, that kind of thing is happening. Um, so I think it, it, you know, clearly Joy is having to renegotiate for the, the indirect costs. Jessica's in the middle of, and I think that's one of the other key things is you've got to incorporate that, and we have not always been successful in doing that. Right. And, and the other issue that is a, another partner, again, our neighborhood is rapidly redeveloping, um, that has come up is they, they really want our parking because they are out of parking and they want to run a shuttle. And I know how much downtown parking spots cost. 
And that could be between fifty dollars and $75,000 annually with the market rate. They don't want to pay market rate. They're like, we will bring all of these people to your door, and we will do cross-marketing, and your, your logo will be on the bus. I was like, I need money first. Yep. I need a contract first. I need to negotiate the lease because cross-marketing does not guarantee people into my museum. And they're like, oh, all these, it's, it's up to, one of the comments made at that meeting where there was like literally a stare down happening um, was, well, we're bringing all these people to you. It's up to you to get them on the door. I'm like, they're coming to go to a farmer's market. That does not mean they're going to then decide to spend another two hours in the neighborhood going through our museum. Right. It's going to increase awareness, but I need a strong correlation financially to enter into this because there are going to be costs to us opening up the parking for you that we may not be able to anticipate. So that's another great phrase from a, a children's book I've read. It's called, the phrase is wholly unanticipated occurrences. So part of when you're doing that negotiation, you need to build in some flex money that is for those wholly unanticipated occurrences. Because again, the corporation can eat those costs. We can't. I think we can probably all understand that uh, people think of us as nonprofits, and so therefore we don't need money. And, <laughs> and we don't know how to run a business. Oh, and, yeah. and so that's what they come to us thinking. Oh, well, it's a nonprofit. They can just do, you know, we'll throw them whatever. a few pennies. Sure. I've had, so the Statler thing never became super public. So I do occasionally get questions because, you know, some of my friends knew that we were talking with the Statler about um, llamas. And they're like, what happened to the llamas? I'm like, well, that's not happening. Um, the barbecue event was very positive. So, you know, we haven't. And I, the other thing is that we did not bring up that I, I know you think about a lot is think about how this partnership might ex affect your visitors mm -hmm. and their understanding of who you are mm -hmm. and what you do and how you're funded. They don't get it. <laughs> um, so for us, it becomes a problem. They see Dr. Pepper on uh, the name of the museum. They've been to the world of Coke. They've had that experience. And so they walk through our doors and they go, oh. <laughs> Well, yeah, we don't have corporate money. You don't get your free Dr. Pepper here. That's not a thing we can do. Um, and it, it's, it, it is a huge problem. You read our reviews, and it comes up time and time again. Why isn't, why isn't it like the world of Coke? Um, our donors many times don't get it. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you need my money? You've got Dr. Pepper's money. No, we don't have Dr. Pepper's money. Um, and so... Our mission is broader than that, and here are ways in which you can support us. But they ha it, there, there is that immediate wall thrown up yep. um, because they don't get it, because our name has got their name. So you had a question. Right. So, with the with the 
with the Statler, they, of course, said, please keep talking to us and we'll be in touch and blah, blah, blah. And I, I sent them information about some of our upcoming events because I did make the point. I'm like, you know, it'd be fabulous if you, like, gave us some money because of all this time that we've spent working on this. Um, but with their current legal challenges, I, there's not time. Um, they don't have time for us and I don't blame them for that. And I will say personally, like I had a friend that was like, I'm thinking about going to one of the Statler's restaurants for book club. Have you been there? Do you want to go? And I'm like, well, it's a little expensive. Parking's a nightmare. And I'm kind of boycotting the Statler. Um, so there's, there's that with the board, the board knew the executive board, at least because it had dragged out for so long they and they kept asking for updates and my updates were always very similar as far as we are still waiting on working out the contract we are still waiting on working out the contract because i kept them updated and they saw how long it was taking i did not get any and of course as soon as they were like never mind i told them um, via email and there weren't any real oh my god this thing isn't happening because I kept them informed. And so I think that's the key with that. Mm -hmm. And, and it is, it does get annoying when you've got these projects that drag out for over a year. And you're like, if I had an update, I would tell you, I promise like that no update means no update. Yeah. So, and I know Jessica's in the middle of that right now where no update means there's no update. And that's one of those things that it does get annoying as the as the boss to have to say that over and over again. <laughs> and of course, after we had the llamas at the village for a week, like we really enjoyed having them. So that was kind of one of those things too. It's like there is that level of disappointment among the staff because we were really looking forward to figuring out how to like integrate them into the our other animals like our donkeys have their own twitter account so it's like ooh, we could have like <laughs> llama twitter account and they could like fight because i'm sure the donkeys are going to be annoyed that the llamas are there because they're taking some of the attention away from them you know we had plans um obviously we would have had some sort of llama llama pajama day at dallas heritageville i mean there were there were ideas the good news is we never spent a lot of time on those ideas so we didn't waste that time it was one of those like just have them in the back of your head, but don't actually work on them until we have a real timeline and know what's going on. And so in that way, we did save ourselves on some of those indirect costs because it's like, I don't know when this is going to happen. There's no point in planning programming because this timeline's not up to us. Do you have anything to add to that or other questions? Well, it is, we're five minutes early, which is great because I'm chair of the Small Museums Committee luncheon, so I need to. <laughs> um, thank you very much for coming. There are evaluations. Okay, yeah, you can clap for us if you'd we'll like to. It. We'll take it. Um, there are evaluations, um, and if you'd like to talk to any of us further, we're happy to do that. Jessica is leaving later this afternoon, so if you want to talk to her, talk to her now. Um, but Joy and I will be around for the rest of the conference, and thank you very much for joining us. All right.